0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. I'll invite you to Revelation chapter 21. Today we're going to be looking at 9 through 27. If you weren't here last week, we looked at the first eight verses, Revelation 21. But Revelation 21 and 22 go together. Remember when John the Apostle wrote... Revelation, he didn't use chapter and verse divisions, so it was probably just on several parchments and maybe a long scroll and wasn't breaking up sentences with periods, just kept writing. So they're more related thematically and topically than by chapter breaks all throughout in our English versions. But the point is is that Revelation 21 and 22 go together. And the theme of Revelation in 21 and 22 in the big picture is the new heaven and the new earth because that's in verse 1. Where it's introduced in Revelation 21. We looked at that last week. And John's been unveiling this vision of the book of Revelation. And by way of reminder, there was some, there were some things that were different about the book of Revelation than maybe say the book of Romans. It's all true. It's all inspired scripture, but the way it was revealed to the apostle was different in Revelation. Because it says that in chapter one, verse one and following that John got the revelation about the information about Revelation through signs, a lot of visual pictures that God gave to John. He didn't necessarily communicate to John, the same John the Apostle, when John wrote the Gospel of John. He just wrote down a whole bunch of information and historical facts that he saw and experienced, and then some illumination directly from the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of God put information in his head, and he wrote it down in narrative form. And also the Apostle Paul, when he wrote Romans, uh, it's very didactic and expository and Paul didn't have necessarily all these visions that communicated the truth of 16 chapters of Romans, but he was just led by the Spirit of God to write down what God wanted Paul to say. But it's very different in the way it was communicated to the in the book of Revelation. John the Apostle was promised, I'm going to give you all these signs and these visions and these pictures that are prophetic, literally that you could see that communicate spiritual truth and then you write that down. Uh, so very different in terms of The actual medium, it was communicated, but the end result is the same. It is the inspired Word of God that we are to learn and apply to our lives and change our thinking and make it more Christ-like. And so that's what we're dealing with here, Revelation 21 and 22. And I think one of the reasons that God gave John pictures of a lot of this truth is because of much of the information in Revelation is stuff we can't even imagine because we've never experienced it. I mean, chapter 21 and 22 is about the future eternal heavens and the earth. We will never experience anything like it in this lifetime. So to have a common analogy that we can understand by way of experience is impossible. And so as a result, God gave John just these vivid, picturesque visions of here are some glimpses of what it will be like and write that down, John. And that's what he did. So this is just amazing information in Revelation 21 and 22, information specifically about the new heaven and the new earth. By the way, this, it says in verse 1, the new heaven. So I personally believe that what John is revealing here, as he's laid it out chronologically, is that this new heaven doesn't exist yet totally that John is describing in this chapter. It doesn't exist, it's not complete yet. I believe this is the new heaven yet to be unveiled and revealed in its completeness in the future, after the, after the rapture, after the millennium, I should say after also the tribulation, After the millennium, after the great white throne judgment, and then that new heaven and new earth and the new city and the new heaven will be revealed complete for the first time ever in the history of God's creation and universe. Because he said it's a new heaven. It's not something that's always existed. It hasn't existed for all eternity. Uh, We know that from other passages in Scripture. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to make and prepare and construct a place for you in my father's house. So it's something that Jesus was going to prepare and construct. Hebrews says that this is the eternal city that Abraham was looking for, whose builder and architect is God. God was going to be building this new heaven, this new eternal city that we've never seen. I also believe there are things that are unique about the new heaven that don't exist now, because in the new heaven are God's people. All of his redeemed people reside there, and God hasn't redeemed all of his people yet, has he? Because the the city is actually uh, bound up with his people that will be redeemed from all of the ages, And, and God is still in the business of constructing his church and constructing his corporate body of people who will be saved by saving them throughout history, and those who are saved will be participants in the new heavenly city. And Uh, Many times the analogy is used in scripture where we are called stones, precious stones that God saves, and he's building this temple, this eternal building. And I I believe he's doing the same thing with the new heaven, the new earth. This new heaven is going to include God's people, God's saved people of all ages. So it is still under construction. As a matter of fact, I am still under construction. I don't know about you, but I am not complete yet, so... Uh, this is something totally new. It hasn't existed. One thing, actually, the more you think about it, at least for me, is mind boggling. That's what this whole chapter is about this new capital city of eternal heaven, and it doesn't exist yet. It hasn't been unveiled yet. It's still under construction. And there it's called the new heaven. It's called new for several reasons. There's never been anything like it. That's why it's new. It is heavenly and eternal. There's never been anything like it. Another reason that it's new, or one of the things that's going to be new and different about it, is that there will be people residing with God who have been saved. There's going to be human beings there. Because if you think back before creation, before any human beings were created, who existed? God did. The triune God existed. And we know from Scripture that God has existed for all eternity. So God has existed in eternity past. And at some point in eternity past, there were no human beings in heaven with God. Isn't that amazing? God who is eternal, all-sufficient, existed as the triune God of the universe at one time with no human beings around whatsoever in heaven, in his dwelling place. So there's an example of where heaven actually existed with the triune God and it was different because there were no human beings around. In the future, in the new eternal heaven, it'll be the same triune God, but he's going to have a company of created beings who have been redeemed and saved and then there are angels also. Who are elect who will also be there. So that's a new component to an eternal heaven that did not exist in eternity past. Uh, absolutely, like I said, mind boggling if you try to dwell on it, but we can't ultimately because we are finite in our thinking. So let's go ahead and look at uh part two of the question we asked is what is it like in heaven? Which virtually every soul that ever comes into this world asks probably many times in their life, what is it like in heaven? And many times what prompts us to think about what heaven is like is the prospect of death because it's appointed on demand to die, right? Because of our sins. So we're all going to die. And when you start thinking about death, you start thinking about the afterlife and then, whoa, what's going to happen to me and my existence? And the great solemnity that comes with that question. And In Japan, we got a you know, tsunami and an earthquake that rips through and kills 10,000 people instantaneously. And those who are left and alive are definitely thinking about life and death. And eternal questions, and it forces the rest of us to think about eternal questions. And one of those ultimate eternal questions is: Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? And if there is a heaven, what is it like? So here in Re- Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27, is the most detailed explanation of the capital city of the new eternal heaven given anywhere in Scripture. It is absolutely breathtaking, and like I said, it's mind-boggling. Let's go ahead and look at. It. I came up with. I just divided it into uh, six. Main highlights of this new eternal heaven, the new capital city that is being described by John the Apostle here. Uh, last week, John said this in verse 2, Revelation 21 verse 2. Well, starting at verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth, this one we live on right now, had passed away. God's gonna get rid of it. Then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And there's no longer any sea in the new heaven and new earth. And then in verse 2, he tells us about this new heaven. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. So the new capital city of the eternal heaven is called the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And so John is at a distance. And in this vision, he sees, as it were, from a distance. He's far away. And all he sees in this vision is the new holy city coming down out of heaven from God. Having been made, having been in the process of being prepared by God himself. And it's coming down out of heaven towards the new earth. And it's going to land there. And just from a distance, he sees it adorned like a a beautiful bride on the day of her wedding. Coming down the aisle, getting ever closer in terms of revealing her beauty for that special day. So that's his vision at this point. It's, It's from a distance. And he sees it way out there, and it's coming down out of heaven. Note in verse 2, he doesn't give us any details about the new heaven. All he said was, it's coming down out of heaven from God, made ready or prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. That's all he says. Zero details about the physical aspects of the new Jerusalem. What changes in verse 9 all the way to 27 is now all of a sudden, John zooms in on the details of this new Jerusalem that was coming down out of heaven. Because as a human being, I know how what my nature is. I see the new heaven coming down from heaven and I'm thinking, wow, I wonder what it's like. Give me some more details. And that's exactly what God does. He zooms in and gives us a closer perspective of what the actual city is like on the outside and on the inside. Which he didn't do in verses 1 through 8. So it's a new perspective. Uh, it is a micro perspective as opposed to the macro perspective it's very similar to genesis 1 and 2 genesis 1 god gives us the big picture of creation the macro perspective taking a a stand back god created everything he did it in six days he rested on the seventh he on the sixth day he created the first two humans a man and a woman we don't even get their names in genesis chapter 1 and then god zooms in on day six and then he gives us all these details about the man and the woman and the culmination of his creation and that the man has a name and his name is Adam and the woman has a name and her name is Eve. And they were made from dirt by the breath of God and they were married by God and there was a purpose for their marriage. So God zooms in on day two and chapter one and chapter two of Genesis complement one another absolutely perfectly. And that's what God is doing right here in Revelation, the second part, 21 verses nine through 27. He's going to zoom in now and give us these amazing details. And by the way, don't get frustrated. His intention is not to be comprehensive in his description because number one, we couldn't handle it. Uh, number two, there's no way that God could contain that in a human book on our behalf. So it's not exhaustive. It is not a comprehensive description of the new earth or in the new heaven, but it is a sufficient description. That's key. It is sufficient information. Because so often, humans, we want to go beyond what is written, don't we? Well, tell me more. Tell me more. Well, hey, actually, I can't because that's the only information I have to go on. And that happens a few times here. He makes a statement that I can't explain it because he didn't tell us. I have no idea. Like the measuring of the wall. that we're gonna, There's this huge, massive, high wall in the new city. And it's measured to be 75 yards, but it doesn't say, is it 75 yards wide or 75 yards high? He doesn't tell us. I don't know. But whatever was measured, it's 75 yards. A huge, massive wall in heaven. That's just one example. So let's just be content with the sufficient details of God's revelation that He gives us and not go beyond what is written. Also, let's not uh, undermine God and not take Him at face value. Who knows better about what's actually going to be in the internal heaven than God Himself and the Spirit of God? Because you read through the commentaries, at least I do, and it it is amazing. Evangelical Christian commentaries and study Bibles going through uh, Revelation 21, and they Many of them just don't take it at face value. They've got to question everything. Well, this couldn't really be a pearl because pearls don't exist in heaven. How do you know, Mr. Commentator? God makes pearls. Why can't God make pearls in heaven? Well, these aren't really those kind of stones. Well, it's not really this big. Well, how do you know? So it comes down to do we believe God or the words of man? And I want to remind you in the same context, in the event that somebody would do that because that's our unbelieving, cynical human nature, In Revelation chapter 19, as God has given this information to John that is absolutely amazing about the end times and the millennium and the great white throne and the eternal heaven, uh, God says to John the apostle, man, write these things down. These words, these are true words of God. Why would you doubt it? These are true words of God. So that's how I read Revelation 21. Just read it at face value. Take it at face value. Unless the text clearly says this is a symbol or a sign of something else, just take it at face value. So that's going to be our approach today. Uh, and if you do that, you will be overwhelmed by what this new heaven looks like and what's inside of it. So let's go ahead and do that with point number one about the new heaven and the new earth. And that is the prophecy of the heavenly Jerusalem, verses 9 and 11. This has to do with the prophet John himself as an apostle. And how he got this prophecy, which I've already talked about some of that in describing what the eternal heaven is going to be like. Only God can do that, to describe what heaven is like, first of all. Because Scripture says that people can't just go to heaven and come back without God's ordained authority. The apostle Paul had a vision of the third heaven, according to Corinthians. So he got to see some of this. God allowed him to see that supernaturally as an apostle. And it must have been frustrating for Paul because God told him, and you can't tell anybody about it. He wasn't allowed to speak about it because one of the reasons he didn't want Paul to tell anybody about it because that's for John who's coming later, the apostle. You got to do all that other fun stuff like go to the Gentiles and get beat up. Save some for John. But only God could reveal this kind of information. So God is the giver of revelation. He describes it. It is true. And he's going to use the prophet. Of John. John the Apostle, what a great privilege that John had to give this information. Let's look at the nature of the prophecy that's given. Verses 9 through 11, it says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Wow, this angel's coming. Wow, we haven't seen this guy since uh, Revelation chapter 16, remember? It went seven seals, seven trumpets, and then the seven last angels with the seven last plagues, which were the seven last bowls that culminate all of world history. And one of those seven angels from the seven last plagues He's still on the scene, and he's going to be unveiling this information from God to John for us. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last place came and spoke with me, saying, come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Well, who's the bride? Well, you would think, without reading the context, oh, this must be the church and just people in the church. It's not just talking about the church. It includes the church, but it's not only the church. I'm going to show you the bride. Well, who's the bride? Well, he tells us verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her female bride, the city, the new heavenly capital of heaven, is the bride. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So just a couple things about this prophecy. God was the one that gave this prophecy. He's going to describe it because only he can. Verse 10, it says that he did this by allowing John the Apostle to be in the Spirit. What does that mean? I'm not quite sure. All I know is he was put in some kind of a prophetic frame of mind or prophetic trance to receive direct revelation from God as an Apostle. God spoke to and spoke through the apostles of Jesus Christ and the apostle Paul in a unique way that he doesn't do through Christians today, because he said so. They were unique vehicles. The apostles were the foundation of the church, and once the foundation of the church was laid, it was intact, he didn't need the apostles and their work anymore, because he gave, what he gave to us through the apostles was the Bible, the sufficiency of scripture. So we have what we need. We don't need living apostles today. Actually, I do have a living apostles today. They're right here. John, Paul, they are alive and they're in heaven and they left a legacy and it's called written scripture and it is sufficient for me to know. But I don't need living people today called apostles running around saying they're apostles and I've got new revelation and new information because your Bible's not sufficient and your Bible's not adequate. Because it undermines the sufficiency of scripture. So uh, this is unique given to an apostle. The Apostle John, and he was in the Spirit, direct revelation from God himself, ensuring that everything that John wrote, wrote down here is not to be questioned because it is without error, it is totally inspired, it is totally accurate. As he said in 199. these are the true words of God. You can trust in your Bible, that's the point. And what it says at face value, isn't that encouraging? You read it to your kid. You can read a story about Jesus out of the Gospels and just take it at face value and believe it. Don't question it, despite what some evangelical liberal scholar commentator might say. Well, I don't know if Jesus really made that much fish and stuff for 20,000 people. Yeah, he did. It's in the Bible. He does miracles. So this is the prophecy given to John in a unique way about a unique event of what the details of what heaven is like. And you can count on it. You can believe it. It comes from his very mind. Awesome truth. A couple other things I want to highlight there. Just the fact that uh, the angel re-enters the scene here from chapter sixteen is like, who cares? Why that little detail there? What's the big deal? Uh, I think it's important because uh, it shows us there's continuity in the revelation of the book of Revelation. There's continuity. It takes us back to chapter sixteen. There's an unfolding that's logical, that is progressive and chronological. History is going somewhere. In other words, the book of Revelation is chronological and unveiling God's truth about how history is going to end in a logical manner. So it is chronological. There is order. There is a beginning. You go back to the church age. You culminate with the new eternal heaven. Unlike many commentators that you might find even in your study Bible or maybe teaching you've heard at another church or another sermon someday where Many people look at chapter 21 and say, well, this isn't the new eternal future heaven. This is how heaven is right now. And this is how heaven has been for quite some time. Or this is what heaven is going to be. Actually, this isn't heaven as we know it. This is actually what the millennium is going to be like in chapter 21. I'm saying, no. The millennium is going to be on earth. And then that's going to be done away with. This is a new heaven and new earth because that's what the Bible says. So this angel provides a context for continuity in the revealing of this process uh, it's chronological and he goes on and one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last place came up and spoke with me saying come here i will show you the bride the wife of the lamb and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain so uh, john's prophetic perspective has changed like i said uh, in the beginning of the chapter, he's at a distance and he just sees the big picture and there's no details. It's just this great beautiful city coming down out of heaven. Now he zooms in. The way he zooms in is the angel of God takes him on closer to the city and on a very high mountain so he can see not just the outside but see somehow supernaturally on the inside and amazing details in there. So his perspective changed for our benefit to unveil this great information and the glory of this new heavenly city. So he carried me away in the spirit at a great and high mountain somehow supernaturally and he unveiled to me, he showed me, I saw it visually, he was an eyewitness of what it was like and he tries his best in human language to write down the unthinkable, trying to accommodate it to our understanding. And the fact, some people find it odd that he calls the New Jerusalem the bride. Well, I thought the church was the bride. Well, it is. And in the Old Testament, if you were a Jew, you'd say, well I thought Israel was the bride. And well it is, because that's what the Old Testament says, that Israel is the bride of the Messiah, the bride of Yahweh. And then in the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. And then all the saints saved during the tribulation who are not a part of the church, they are the bride of Christ. So what Revelation reveals to us at the end is that every redeemed soul all throughout history from Job, one of the first saints who ever lived that we know about that was probably not a Jew for all we know and he wasn't a part of the church, he's a believer. But because he was saved and knows God, he is also part of the bride of Christ. So the bride here at the end of the age, after God has saved all of his people, the bride speaks of every redeemed soul in the history of the world that has ever been saved by God. And they all come together at the one big wedding before God to be married to Christ and really God the Father for all eternity so the bride incorporates all believers at the end of the age uh, also the fact that the city is called a bride is this new heavenly city is called the bride and not individuals because the city actually you can't have a city without people that's just all there is to it. what do you if you had a city with no people in it what is it? a ghost town, a bunch of buildings it's not a city as a matter of fact the word the origin for the word city means people. So you can't have a city without people. So when it says the city, it's talking about the city of redeemed people that personally belong to God, who God has fellowship with. So is it a city or is it a bunch of people who've been redeemed? The answer is yes, it is both. And that's why it is called the bride of Christ. It includes God's precious saints from all the ages, redeemed saints from the jewish community and from the church and from the nations during the age of the church and tribulation saints and everybody is in this great grand glorious meeting in this holy city that is coming down prepared by god uh, so that's what he's referring to there the holy city where redeemed saints live forever coming down out of heaven from god verse 11 having the glory of god the glory what is the glory of god in the old testament the word glory means weight a weighty thing something that in presses down with significance and leaves an imprint. That's where God's, that word for glory comes from. It's the, the weighty things of God, the full attributes of God collectively representing who he is. God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a physical body. He's not an old man. He is a spirit. He is infinite. But when he wants to reveal himself to humanity and to creation, he does manifest himself somehow by... Revealing his attributes, and it's usually in this glorious, splendorous array of different kinds of lights and lightning and sound and thunder and fire. Can't understand it, but that's the best that the biblical writers can do to explain what the glory of God is. But here in the new heaven and the new earth, we have the fullness of God's glory being revealed like never before in the history of the world. And inside that city is the glory of God In its brilliance unveiled. And at the end of verse 11, it says it looks like a crystal clear jasper. This entire city is crystal clear. It is translucent. In other words, God is on the inside of the city in his full presence. And God is light because that's what scripture says. And emanating through all of the city and the city's walls because everything is clear is the light of God emanating through all of creation. And the fact that the entire city and everything about it is translucent and clear and transparent is that there's nothing to be hidden in heaven, is there? There is no sin. There are no secrets. And it's the revelation of God. It's amazing. It says it looks like a jasper. The best that we can tell is a jasper is something like a diamond. So this new capital city just looks like this huge, massive, beautiful, perfect, pure, translucent diamond that we have never seen the likes of before. That is what heaven is like. Amazing, isn't it? So that is the prophecy and the prophet himself as it begins to describe the details. Let's go on to the next point. That's the security of the heavenly Jerusalem in this new, the new eternal heaven. That's verses 12 through 14. It had a great and high wall. It's a city and cities in the Old Testament, cities among the Jews, just about every city, almost all of them, they had walls, literal walls. And you built a wall around your city to, primarily to protect your city. You built a wall around your city to provide security for the people. The heavenly Jerusalem, the capital, it has a wall. It has a heavenly wall. It's a supernatural wall. It's a wall made by God. It'll never be destroyed. What does this wall provide? Why is there a wall in the capital city of heaven? Because there's no sinners in there, right? So it's not like God has to keep anybody out. Uh I, I just think it's a wall there that just... Reminds God's people that there is eternal security from God. And that's what heaven is. Eternal security from God. Verse 11, it had a great and high wall with twelve gates. And in every city again that had a wall, it always had gates. It didn't necessarily have twelve. Having twelve walls, I mean twelve gates around your city walls is excessive. Usually you had fewer gates than that in ancient cities. You didn't want too many gates because that means you had to protect all those gates. You usually wanted a few gates, typically. So it was rare to have this many. But what does a gate speak of? A gate speaks of access. And that's what this picture is. You've got the successive number of gates in the capital city. That just means there's just full access for all believers all the time, in and out. As a matter of fact, the text goes on to say that the gates are never closed. They're never locked. It never gets dark. It's always open. Seven eleven, twenty four 24 24-hour-7, all the time. That's what heaven is like. And there's... Ongoing continual access to God, his immediate presence in the capital city of heaven, in through these massive, huge gates. These gates are bigger than anything we can actually conceive of by the way don 't be thinking of anything small in your mind as you go through the description. Everything is on a massive scale that we can 't even conceive of in terms of the details that 's true of this massive, great, high wall with these 12 massive, huge gates. Actually, the Greek word for gate, it's not even gate, it's gate tower. That's bigger than a gate, because a gate tower, that's the literal Greek word, that includes the gate and then some. That includes the gate and the foundation and the periphery around it and everything else. Twelve huge, massive gate towers around the capital city in heaven that will be revealed, providing ongoing, continual access for God's people. To God himself who was revealed in unveiled glory. And at the gates there were 12 angels. What are angels? Angels are ministering spirits. That's what Hebrews tells us. One of the Psalms tells us that uh, angels are not just ministering spirits, but ministering spirits on our behalf. And so these, there's an angel at each of these gates. Uh, many times the angels are perceived as guardians or helpers, and that's probably the function of each one of these angels uh, by God. They guard the holiness of God, we know. Uh, immediately around him, the seraphim or the cherubim, saying, holy, holy, holy. And that's probably what these are. These are watchmen angels serving some purpose ordained by God. And that's, well, what do these angels do? I don't know because it doesn't tell me. But I will be sufficient with what it reveals. Trusting God. He knows what he's doing. For some reason, he thought I needed to know that. There are 12 angels here at all of these gates. Uh, it goes on. And the names were written. On, there were names written on these me- huge, massive gates well, what are the names written on them? each one of the 12 gates? By the way, uh, you're going to see that the city is a square. It's actually a cube, the new heavenly city. And it's got three gates on each side where you can enter in. And on each one of these huge, massive gates, there is a name tag, apparently, up on the gate. And the text says that uh, there are 12 different names all around the city on these gates. And the names according to the end of verse 12, are the names of the sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons who made up the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And each one of their names is written on all these gates, which tells me a lot of things about heaven. Is that God preserves your identity when you are in heaven to some degree. He preserves the good things about your identity in heaven after this life. Because you know how some people will say, when you go to heaven, you turn to an angel. Well, how do you know? I don't think so. You don't turn into an angel. And by the way, all angels, they, they look the same. If everybody turned into an angel, we we wouldn't know who was who. But God preserves some human identity about us when we get to heaven. Think about uh, when Jesus transfigured, there was Moses and Elijah with Jesus. How do we know it was Moses and Elijah? Because they looked like a glorified Moses and Elijah. And the same is going to be true regarding the identity of not just the 12 sons of Israel, but also all of Israel that was saved in the Old Testament that is now redeemed, and they have something personal about them that is preserved in heaven, that is a beautiful thing. Because we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, not just in the earth. You will have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father in heaven on an individual basis. That's just an amazing thing. So there is unity and there is diversity. Unity, we all live in the city together. We are all in God's family. There is diversity and personality and that God knows us on a one-to-one basis. Amazing. As a matter of fact, he's got a secret name just between you and him. I thought there were no secrets in heaven. Well, I guess I should say that's the only exception I can think of. You and Jesus got your secret name. That's kind of cool. So he goes on describing uh, the outside of the city. Now, verse 13, and there were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. So it's that's kind of a square. And then verse 14 says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So you got these huge massive gates, and on the sides of the gate they got the names of the sons of israel and then on the bottom they got uh, names on the foundation stones of the wall all around of the 12 apostles so again personal identity is preserved the church is not the new israel the israel didn't morph into the church and that identity is preserved in the future and so you've got the 12 names of the apostle sketched forever on the eternal city isn't that amazing that's that's an awesome privilege and i don't know if it's apostle paul supplanting somebody else. I would imagine it's the 12 apostles of Jesus. And then Paul, he has his own special reward. He was a latecomer, he said, about himself as an apostle. But he does have a special reward. But at the foundation stones are the 12 names of the apostles. Um, so this is the security that is being provided by God himself in this eternal city. The security of the walls, the security of the gates, the foundation stones, the angels. Reminding us that when we get to heaven, we have full, total, eternal security in God and in Jesus Christ. An awesome, blessed truth. For us, Let's go on to another one about truth, about the details of this new heaven and new earth. And that's 15 to 17, which I call the immensity of the new capital city. The immensity meaning how big it is, how spacious it is. What is the biggest city in America right now? Well, there'd probably be a debate. Uh, the biggest city in terms of population? Uh, you got Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, you know, and a couple of others. What about the largest city in terms of space? Uh, who knows? Yeah, maybe something in Texas or Alaska where nobody lives in Alaska. But it's spacious, huge, massive. Well, the new capital city in heaven is going to be way bigger than any city on planet Earth. As a matter of fact, the eternal capital city of heaven would engulf and incorporate and swallow up every major city of the world and then some. That's how immense the new capital city of heaven is going to be. Well, why is that so? Why is it going to be so huge and so massive and so immense because God is eternal, omniscient and omnipresent. And also God is going to accommodate a lot of redeemed people through the ages to live there and also countless multitudes of angels and other beings before the presence of of God. But it is just mind boggling once again about how huge and immense it is. Look at the details 15 through 17 about the capital city. Remember, this is just the capital city and the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod. So the angel has a measuring rod. It's a divine measuring rod. We've seen this earlier in the book of Revelation. There's an angel in Ezekiel that does the same thing. The measuring rod from God, and then he measures out something very specific, whether it's the temple. But when this happens, the idea of a measuring rod from God is marking out God's territory. This is God's area. This is created by God this is protected by God this is area designated by God specially for a specific purpose so that's what the measuring rod indicates is used previously in scripture and so this angel has a measuring rod and he's going to mark out the new Jerusalem the new city and there are specifics and there are details and this is real and it's going to be a real place that's another thing about it he's marking out the details of this real heaven and the new capital city and the immensity of it verse 16 and the city is laid out as a square Literally, it's laid out like a square or a quadrangle or literally a cube. So the angel measures the new city and he measures it as though it is a cube in terms of the height, the width, the depth in a three-dimensional capacity. It's laid out as a square. Its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles or somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 miles. That's how big the city is. That's from here to Colorado or Denver and past. That's how Huge this city is. That includes and incorporates literally thousands of cities as we know them here on planet Earth. And this city is also unique in that we count cities only you know, one-dimensionally, right? How wide it is and how long it is. And here, the heavenly city, it also is measured in terms of how high it is. So it's 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. That is the new eternal city because this space is going to be occupied by angels. And I would imagine... Uh, redeemed human beings as well. And maybe there's, a I don't know, a gold heavenly staircase going up and all over the place. But that space is going to be occupied uh, by the redeemed in heaven. It is uh, beyond what we can comprehend in terms of how big it is. Verse 17 says, And he measured its wall. So the city has a wall that we talked about earlier. And again, uh, there's debate as to whether he's measuring the width of the wall or the height of the wall. We do know it is a great and massive high wall because that's what the earlier verse said in verse 12. Uh, but the wall, when it is measured by the angel, is 72 yards. I think it's 72 yards wide. That's the, just short of a football-filled wide, which would accommodate a very, very, very great and tall wall in heaven. Absolutely amazing. 72 yards. In a, and by the way, the angel says, uh, the 75 yards is according to human measurements. John, just so you could understand it. It's trying to accommodate you. Uh, which are also angelic measurements. So in other words, this angel took measurements, not an angelic metrics but in human metrics so we could understand it God is accommodating our understanding so that is the immensity of how huge spacious massive it's going to be I've actually heard people say well how's God going to fit all the people in heaven from all the ages here's how it's bigger than anything you've ever conceived of in your life and that's just the capital I wonder if there are other cities in heaven actually heaven has no limits because God is infinite wherever God is that really is heaven Let's go on to the next one. So that's the immensity of heaven. What about the beauty of heaven? That's 18 through 21. And the material of the wall was jasper. So now he actually starts describing this stuff. The material of the wall was jasper. Again, like a diamond. It is translucent. It is beautiful. It is clear. It is pristine. Light emanates through it. That's the wall. How can that be? It's 75 yards wide. I don't know. Because it's in heaven. It's eternal. God made it. It's amazing. I don't comprehend it. I just believe it. Cause that's how God has revealed it. And the city was pure gold, like clear, the entire city was pure gold. Gold is one of the purest elements that we know of here on this fallen cursed earth. Did you know that our gold even corrodes and falls apart? In heaven, there's a heavenly gold that never corrupts, never corrodes. It is heavenly in terms of its origin and nature. We've never seen or experienced anything like it. As a matter of fact, this gold is so different. Again, it is translucent. It is transparent. It's gold that you can see through. How is that possible? I don't know. I've never seen such a thing. And the streets are made of gold, we know. later, So the entire city is gold. You know, this puts Las Vegas to shame, doesn't it? That's what I was thinking of. First time I ever drove from Colorado to Las Vegas. I was 19 years old. Never seen it in my life. And then we drove through that part uh, wherever it was uh, coming in. There's nothing in darkness. And it was at nighttime and all of a sudden just lights. And I told my brother-in-law, what in the world is that? He said, hey, that ain't heaven. That is sin city. But anyway, just the lights. So the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear uh, glass. Then... Those twelve foundation stones around the entire walls with the names of the apostles are described in detail in terms of their color. And there's twelve different colors. Twelve different colors. I wonder if that's where the uh idea of having your birthstone came from. Different colored stones and Well, the foundation stones of the city well, were adorned with every kind of precious stone. Actually, each massive, huge, amazing, mind-boggling stone was one stone in itself and they're of a heavenly nature and he actually describes the stones and what they are Uh, the first foundation stone was jasper again that's like a diamond and i put there in the bulletin for you the best that scholars could from history and whatever else uh figure out what colors these were so jasper is probably something akin to a diamond that was the first stone. Uh, the second stone was sapphire, which we think is bright blue. The third stone was chalcedony from Chalcedon, uh, probably sky blue or agate or a combination thereof. The fourth stone, emerald, bright green. Verse 20, the fifth stone, sardonyx, red and white striped. Ooh, the candy cane stone. The sixth stone, sardius, red, bright red. The seventh stone, chrysolite, which is like golden. The eighth stone, beryl, which could be like blue-yellow. The ninth stone, topaz, a yellow-green. The tenth stone, chrysoprase, golden-green, we think. The eleventh, jacinth, kind of a very bright violet. And then finally the twelfth stone, amethyst, which we think was bright purple but the point is these are precious they are beautiful they are all bright they are glistening another main point of this is just when god's just trying to describe heaven it's just you know what john it is just beautiful it's beautiful like nothing you've ever seen it is beautiful with diversity like you have never seen before which sp- speaks of the creator god god is a creative god isn't he a god of beauty and all glory and a great variety god is not bland and boring his favorite color is not just beige I mean, he could have made everything in life beige, right? Beige grass and the beige sky and beige water and beige humans and beige... How boring would that be? You wouldn't see anything. Everything would be camouflaged. Everybody's bumping into everything. But God is a God of creation, diversity, variety, brilliance, splendor, glory. It's the whole point. That is heaven. And if you're scratching your head saying, man, this is hard to conceive and understand, that's the point. If your brain is hurting, John's getting his point across. That is something to look forward to. You can't compare it to anything else you've ever experienced, any dream you've had, any place you've been. This is the new heaven. Awesome. Reflecting the infinite, all-glorious God. And he goes on in the, of the details, verse 21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. And you're thinking, wait a minute, these were huge, massive tower gates. Uh, the the wall, one direction, was 1,500 miles, and the gates have to accommodate the 1,500 miles, which means that uh, the gates have to be, I don't know, several blocks wide. What do you mean the gate was a pearl? I've never seen, I've thought of a pearl that was several blocks wide. That's what he has to see. Well, and because you're hard of hearing and don't believe what I said, verse 21, he says the the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. Just to kind of let us know, this is really what I'm talking about. What kind of pearl is this? I don't know. It's a heavenly pearl. It's a supernatural pearl. It's a pearl that God made somehow. And pearls were unique. He just listed 12 stones. They were all either made out of metal or rock as we know them. But the pearl is unique because the pearl is not, it's a precious gem, but it's not made out of rock and it's not made out of metal. It is the only precious gem that we know of that's actually formed and made by a living entity so somehow these pearls are made by the living entity of almighty god himself and they are huge massive supernatural heavenly eternal pearls that we have never seen the likes of before absolutely amazing each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass that is the absolute utter beauty of this heaven that is actually our home, and we have our names written in heaven, and we will be there someday. Let's go on to number five, and that's the glory of the heavenly Jerusalem. And the glory, again, used in the Old Testament, speaks of God himself, his person, his attributes, his very essence being revealed to man, the weighty God of the universe that leaves an imprint on the lives of all of his creation, and that's what he's done on our behalf. And so uh, 22 to 23 speak of God himself, picking up what it said earlier about God's presence in heaven. God is, or Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God present among us, God who has revealed Himself. He's not hiding behind uh, a building anymore made of brick like in the temple or a tent like He did with the tabernacle or even being hidden in the human form of the pre-resurrected glorified Christ or His glory even now being hidden in heaven that we can't see immediately as we're down here on earth as sinners. And that's why Scripture says no man can see me, my unfilled glory, and live. But we can see Him when we get to heaven in the eternal heaven. His effulgence unveiled like never before. Verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the eternal heaven. There's no temple. What is The, te- the temple served one purpose. And that was where God pitched a tent. That's where God re- God's presence resided in the temple in the tent when He was among men. In the eternal heaven, God is going to unveil that temple, uh, unveil the, the tent and reveal His immediate presence to His people like never before. In full glory. So there was no temple in it. Why is there no temple? For the Lord God, the Almighty, that's God the Father, and the Lamb are its temple. God is there immediately with His people. Do you ever feel like God is distant? Well, in a real sense, He is. Because He's veiled. He's in our heart through faith by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is literally in heaven in His resurrected body. God the Father hasn't unveiled His glory the way He's going to in the future, so there is a real way in that God can feel distant. We believe in Him, though we do not see Him, says the book of Peter. Here He is not distant. He is immediately in our midst. He is immediately accessible in the city of God, where all saints will be able to go to and fro freely, having this personal, one-on-one, intimate relationship with the Creator and the Savior of the universe. That is heaven. Verse 23, And the city has no need of the sun. Isn't that amazing? I'd say the sun is probably the most dominating entity that we know of in our universe. We're dependent upon it, and yet it can be a threat when it burns things, and yet in heaven there's no need of the sun, and how brilliant it is because it gives light. The sun is not evil. God created the sun in the very beginning. And he created it for a purpose. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created the sun and the moon on day 4 and he, for a purpose so that it might give light day and night, times and seasons. So... I'm reminded that the new heaven, new earth, new capital city that is yet future. So the idea of going to heaven isn't taking us back to the Garden of Eden Eden reinstated. That's not what heaven is. The first Garden of Eden, even before it fell into sin and fell under the curse, it was inadequate. It was insufficient. It wasn't comparable to the eternal heaven. Because there are things about that were in paradise even before sin that are not in the new heaven and the new eternal city. Because they're inadequate. The sun is an example. The sun was a visual reminder of the glory of God. God is light. And in the future, in the new eternal heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, God Himself will be there. No more need for this insufficient, weak creation of the sun. And the same thing with the moon. So the city has no need of the sun of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God Himself will illuminate. And He's going to illuminate everything. God is light according to Scripture, and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus is going to be unveiled in glory like we've never seen before as the resurrected Savior and Son of God. And they will literally light up, torch up the universe, and there's no darkness either because God and His glory in Jesus as well. That's the glory of God. Let's go on to the last point. That's the purity of what it's like in this new eternal city of heaven. The purity there, it's without sin. It's without a lot of things that we know of, uh this eternal heaven. Oh, by the way, when it says there's no need for the sun, um, these are some of the things that are different about it. So in this future, this is under the point number five about the glory of of heaven. Things that aren't in the new heaven and new earth. No more sun, no more moon, no more temple, no more sea, which covers 75% of our land right now. No more night, no more locked gates, no more need for police or alarms because there's no more sin. Everybody's perfected. No more hearses, no more tombstones, no more graves, no more doctors, sorry, medical doctors, no more lawyers. Some of you might be saying hallelujah, some of you might be a lawyer, so. No more evangelists? Hmm. Because heaven is glorious. Number six, uh, the purity of the heavenly Jerusalem, 24 to 27. And the nations, or maybe an equally good translation is the peoples or the ethnos, that's the Greek word, it, many times it just means people. And it means specifically people from all over the world, of uh, every nation as well as every nationality, every ethnicity. And that's what God promised in Revelation chapter 7, that he was going to save people throughout history from every nation, every ethnicity, every conceivable place on planet Earth is going to be there. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for middle class American Christians. No. And that's why that word is there. The nations are going to be there from all of history. What nationality was Adam and Eve? I don't know. What color were they? I have no idea. My children at one time, they used to think that Adam was striped and Eve was polka dotted. And that would cover everybody. Combination thereof. I don't know. 24, and the nations shall walk by its light in heaven in the new Jerusalem. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Who are the kings of the earth? I don't know. There's a lot of speculation about that. But apparently they're going to be kings. They're going to be redeemed. They used to be humans. They have glory. They are allowed in heaven. They are of God. They belong to Him. And God and Jesus did make promises to believers that they would, we would be kings and reign with Him, Right? But it speaks of this authority. I also think it's here because of that great contrast of Revelation chapter 17 and 18 when it kept talking about the kings of the earth who are in cahoots with the Antichrist who kill believers during the time of the tribulation and hate Jesus Christ, the kings of the earth. Here are kings of the earth who love Jesus Christ. And when they go to the capital city, they bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ because they don't flex their muscles. They submit in humility to the true king of the universe, God the Father and Jesus Christ as Lord. And as a result, they bring glory to this place called heaven. Taking the crowns off of their head and putting it humbly at his throne where it belongs. Verse 25, and in the daytime, by the way, for there shall be no night there in heaven. And by the way, because there's no night, its gates shall never be closed. twenty-four-seven. Twenty-six. 26, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. It's going to be a cosmopolitan place. People from all over the world. No prejudice, no bias, no partiality. Everyone is a redeemed believer, part of the, the, being the bride of Jesus Christ and God Almighty. And then finally, verse 27, And nothing unclean... Well, who goes to this eternal city? It's just a, it's a reminder again and again and again. By, Revelation is an evangelistic book. Remember that one angel... Floating through the sky at the end of the tribulation, crying out about the gospel, the eternal gospel. Come, repent, be saved. God is a saving God. Revelation is an evangelistic book calling people to repentance to be saved from their sins so they don't undergo the wrath of God as described here so that they can be in this glory, glorious eternal heaven with God forever and ever. That's another reason to preach Revelation. It's evangelistic. God has a saving, merciful, patient, forgiving heart. He wants sinners to come to Him. That's why Jesus came. So again, this appeal to unbelievers in John's days, he's writing this book under persecution of many people who hated Christians at the time in 95 A.D. Well, how do you get into this glorious eternal heaven with God forever? Verse 27, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. In other words, anybody that has unforgiven sin cannot get into heaven. The only way anybody can get into heaven is to have forgiven sin. And it has to be all of your sin forgiven. Well, I want to go to heaven. Then you need all of your sins forgiven. Well, how do I do that? Well, you can't earn it. You can't work for it. Going to church doesn't save your sin. Getting baptized doesn't save your sin. Having Christian parents doesn't save your sin. Nothing you do saves you from sin. It is only the work of Jesus Christ. Him crucified, risen, ascended and coming again. The all-glorious Jesus Christ putting your faith in Him. And if you do that, believing He died as your substitute... Admitting your sin to God and asking Him to save you, you will be saved the moment you pray and commit your life to Him. That's how you get into heaven. That's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing we do, but all of what Jesus did and all of who Jesus is. That's who gets into the eternal city. Nothing unclean, nothing unforgiven will go into heaven, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's it. Maybe you're thinking, well, man, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I'm going there. Well, then get saved. How do you do that? Well, make sure that your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, how do you do that? Well, make sure that you're one of the elect. Well, how do you do that? Because only God knows that. That's true. Well, how do you do that? You believe in the gospel. That's how you do that. Because everybody that truly believes in the gospel is elect before the foundation of the world. Everybody who is elect, their name is in the book of life. And everybody's name that is in the book of life is going to heaven for all eternity to be with God and God's people. I want to close with this great verse. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho! Remember that? That's to wake you up after the sermon. Ho! That's why they put it in there. Great passage. Isaiah 50. This also talks about how to get to heaven. In inspired biblical terms, just read a couple of verses here. Uh, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho! Everyone who thirsts spiritually, who's hungry, who wants forgiveness, who wants to know where they're going to go when they're... When they die, who wants to know what life is about right now? What is the purpose of life? Oh, everyone who thirsts. That's what it's talking about. Come. Come to God. Come to His truth. Come to Jesus. Come to the gospel. Come to the waters of living life. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat from God. Come, buy wine and milk. That's by truth. Without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, that's God, and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me, that is God and His truth. Listen in order that you may live eternally. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Wow. Verse 6 finally says, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. There it is. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and God will have compassion on him and to our God for God will abundantly pardon. You will be forgiven and you will be allowed to go to heaven. Let's go ahead and pray and thank God for that great truth. Father, we do thank you for, again, your word, the clarity of it. I thank you for the sufficiency of your word. As I'm reminded of Revelation 21, there is so much that we don't know about heaven, but absolutely everything you wanted us to know right now is there. God, help us to respond in faith by believing it and also use it to change the way we think, to motivate the way we think that we would live a life that pleases you and also that we'd live a life that is a conduit of truth to reach others who need to know about heaven. Thank you so much for this glorious truth. We commit it to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.